everybody, and welcome to the 307 RPG Podcast. I'm Patrick. I'm Nolan. I am Zach. Good morning, fellas. How are we doing this fine Sunday morning? Surviving. Is that a right word? That's <laughs> okay. <laughs> yep, doing well. Good. I had to be Glad here. To surviving, I guess. Surviving. <laughs> it's like a zombie apocalypse. Nolan's like, we're surviving. It's good. We're okay. Yeah, stay up late, play video games, stay up late doing plays, you know, life happens. Yeah, no shit. <laughs> yeah, uh, one more one more week, right? Next week's your, yep. uh, will be the final show? Yeah, we'll do next week. So we, of course, we did Friday, Saturday. We had a dress rehearsal Thursday, which was really cool because we had um, uh, a bunch of people from VOA, some of the folks that live out there came in and were our audience and they were a really good audience. So that was nice to see. And then we opened Friday night to a sold out crowd. Um, Saturday night was sold out. And then today I actually had some people text me saying they tried to get tickets at the door and it's already sold out. Wow. So yeah, it's, it's going really well. I know that we, we have four shows next week, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. They're all, I mean, the theater, because it's in the smaller theater, theater only sits 80 people, and they're all are already over 50, including Easter Sunday. Wow. Um, okay. It is going so well that the director of the YO and the director of the show has asked everybody if we'd be willing to do a fifth show on Saturday. So we may be doing Thursday, Friday, two shows Saturday, two, two shows Sunday. So I guess that's a sixth show. So. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Yep. It's a great show. It's incredibly funny. Um, I know my wife was very concerned about it. She's like, you know, I don't really laugh at stuff like that. And I talked to her last night. She goes, that show is hilarious. So that's awesome. Yeah. But we're not here to talk about that. <laughs> before we jump, <clears throat> before we do jump into what we're here to talk about, did either of you do anything funny or exciting this weekend or this week? Dead silence. Dead silence. A little bit of video um, games, but yeah, other than that, uh, as far as personal stuff goes, my wife is doing a four-week gut protocol health uh, diet, and so therefore cool. I am doing a four-week gut protocol health diet, and you say cool okay. until you realize that you take out <laughs> corn, gluten, dairy, added sugars, high-processed soy, and alcohol, which most of those things get me through life, so. Gotcha. <laughs> what are you eating? Uh, chili? No, oh, uh, he likes chili. So. As long as you make it on your own, you'd be surprised at how much sugar is in everything. So. Yep. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah, it's it's mind boggling. And it's interesting because like I, this is something that I because I tell you, as I do this show, one of the things I've noticed at my 47 years and massive amount of weight on my gut, my knees are telling me to fuck off regularly right now. <laughs> Yeah, they hurt because the show requires me to do a whole lot of dancing and it's just not something that I do a lot of. And so my knees are are not enjoying it. So, yeah, it does. And I think uh, not necessarily a gut health diet, but there's definitely a change in lifestyle coming very soon for for the old Patrick. Yeah, it it sucks. (sighs) I would I would arm wrestle a midget for a flour tortilla right now. (laughs) Flour tortilla with a gin and tortillas either. Uh, no, bloody, you can't have a tortilla at all, my friend. No, gluten, sugar, all of it. So, no, it's been fun oh. uh, making our own stuff, making our own sauces. Yeah, yeah. 
has been making some bread and that's been interesting. Mm. Uh, so some, some stuff is really bread. good. It's, it's tough with the snacks. So anyway, the idea behind it is you take these things out for four weeks and then one day after you're done, you have a slice of bread and basically see if it destroys you. And you're like, oh, hey, you have a gluten allergy. And you're like, oh, okay. Well, that sounds yeah. horribly terrible. <laughs> yeah. 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 Hard. So oh. anyway, it'll be better after it's done. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> well, let us know it how you feel in a month. If you stick with it, you might find four weeks later that you actually enjoy it. There are yeah. parts about it. Like, again, I, I think just being smart about things like I, I definitely you grab a thing of tomato sauce or they're like, oh, this would be great. And there's seven grams of added sugar. You grab, you know, a thing of oat milk that's healthy. And there's, oh, there's 12 grams of added sugar. You look at a can of soda and there's 45 grams of sugar and you're just like, yeah, we may have a problem with sugar. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, there have yeah. been things that have been good about it, but at the same time, it's awful. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, years ago, I read a book. I can't remember the name of the book, but it was talking about kind of this. It was talking about this triangle, right, of health. You know, everything that we should be eating or what we are eating um, versus medication versus therapy, and just how every single one of them are linked. And it's like, well, you need to eat this, this, and this, or eat a, or drink a diet soda because it has no sugar, but it has aspartame. So it makes you crave sugar. So we're going to need you to take this pill because that'll help reduce your sugar, but it's going to cause you to have the depression. So we're going to need you to go see this therapist. You're going to feel terrible about yourself and you're just going to want to eat. And it just this horrible like triangle effect. It was really interesting. It's a vicious cycle. It really is. You are the fuel that you put in your body, yeah. I guess. So. I guess. Well, there is no I guess. You are. You're absolutely you are what you eat. Okay, so anyway, <laughs> let's let's get on to what we came to talk about, which is of course we are continuing our look at the one ring from Free League. We left off last week at chapter 3 because this chapter was so big that we were not able to finish it in the time span that we have allotted. So we are going to be picking up with it right after the callings to previous experience and then hopefully possibly maybe We'll get into chapter four. I don't know, because there's still quite a bit of chapter three that's fairly important to talk about here. Wouldn't you guys agree? Yeah, and I think it is, like Zach had said, it is a little daunting, but this is not necessarily the most important part, but this is like, this sets the tone for everything. So take the time, do it, do it right, and you'll be set for the entire, or you can just sit back and enjoy the story. Yeah, a player only needs to read this section and how... uh, like the mechanics work. All the other things are really nice, but this is really the, this is the meat. This is the, the bread and butter. These are the things that you actually have to know, kind of, you have to read. And so it's the most important section, but also once you're through with it, you know, the rest of it is lore master stuff. Absolutely. So we did leave off with the callings last week. And if you do have a copy of the book, this would be around ch- uh, page 46. And we're going to pick up with previous experience. Uh, Nolan, do you want to kick us off here with previous experience? Yeah. So basically, as we get started here, it is we're still in the character creation area. Um, at this point in the thing, it's kind of this is kind of our background. This is wh- what you did, what you do. Uh what led you on the path to get here? Um, 
So this is kind of the, the start of some skill points. Players have 10 points to spend on raising skills and combat proficiencies. The cost of raising each ability is shown in a couple of tables, whether it's cost or proficiency. Uh, varying cost skills are a little bit easier to learn, um, whereas combat is a little more difficult. So a uh, skill cost costs uh, one point to start with, whereas a combat would uh, cost two. Um, so you can raise these abilities given how you have these points, but raising a skill from one dot to two dots in a skill is one point for one, then two points for two, three points for three, and five points for four. So as you become an expert, it takes harder to master the details, which makes sense. Yeah, and you start with 10 experience points, which is just enough if you already had one dot in a combat proficiency to get you to three dots yeah. or... Um, you could get yourself from if you had one dot, you could get yourself to five or four dots in a skill. So if you really wanted, you could focus down and create a character that like, look, guys, I only do swords. I don't I've got. Uh, what was it? Enheartening. Yeah, and heartening. Yeah, I've, <laughs> I've got one point of enheartening and I've got four points in sword. Like, that's all I'm going to do. Um. But you could also, with 10 points, you could have one dot in every skill. You could, yeah. And I think this is the what? time where you can attack that, uh, again, we're making a group of adventurers that can go out and set on a task. We sought out to find a burglar. This guy's a burglar. This is what he's good at. You know, uh, probably some inheartened, some stealth, some riddle, and away we go. You know, you didn't ever really ask Bilbo to pick up a sword and shield and defend people. And actually people were blown away when he stood over, you know, you know what I mean? When he actually did combat, people were like, this isn't your job. Like, I can't believe you did that. Like you're reckless, you know? So, um, yeah, yeah. I, so I, I don't know about this system and maybe you guys have a better feeling for it. I feel like in most games though, by being a Jack of all trades, you hurt yourself just from experience of, uh, like vampire. It's kind of like, well, you, you can't, you're either bad or you're awesome and don't just be okay. Cause that's still bad. And I don't know yeah. how it is for this one. So I think, you know, it depends. Cause if you have high attributes, you know, if you only need a 12 on your to roll, you know, you're adding, you're rolling a D 12. You always have kind of a chance. Sure. Um, but I think, you know, I get I get the impression. Yeah, I, I get the impression, though, just thinking about the books, the movies, the, you know, the whole lore that that's the created around this game. And and we really see the characters focused on one weapon. I mean, we know that Aragorn has a bow. We know he knows how to use it. But what do we see him use the most? His sword. Whereas we see Legolas like close combat using his bow, uh, especially as you know, when we get to like the fellowship, whereas, and I, I know he wasn't in the book in the Hobbit, but in the, the movie version of the Hobbit, we see him predominantly using a sword and using it quite well. And I think that's a great example of experience where he started out that way, but then progressed to, you know, to, to eventually use the bow. I would wager though, like if you sat down and created that character, you gave him fairly good proficiencies in both. And I think it's going to come down to what you want your character to do, right? Isn't that kind of how it always goes? I think so. And I think yeah. more so in this system with that ability, um, the ability to pick what you are now tells the story. Again, how did I get to this part? Yeah. This is what I've done. So use this to tell that story. 
Uh, were you a, a swindler and a gambler at the drinking table and ran into a bunch of bad luck and now you've got to pay somebody some debt or whatever? Let's let's lean into that riddles and stealth and that kind of stuff. But a little bit of, you know, how to use a dagger in a fight. Cool. Use it to tell a background story. Yeah. Based on what I can see, just like the numbers for if you really want to like dive in character creation and make a, a good character, quote unquote. I think you need as many skill points in as few skills as possible. And it's just because you're rolling a d12 and then a number of d6s. You're guaranteed the d12, but we know you already know what the target number is. It's somewhere between 17 and 14, 17 and 13. If you're only rolling a d12, you have to roll a 12. Right. Which is an automatic success. You know, if you're rolling three dice, then you've got a one in six chance of of success, because then if you roll a 12, if you roll a 10 on your D12 and then you're guaranteed to succeed on a on a 13. Right. Because if you roll an 11, I know the dice are weird. If you roll an 11, right. then you you don't count the D12 at all. A 12 is not right. a success. An 11 isn't is no no 12 at all. 10 is the highest like number that you can roll. If you've got one point in every single skill, you there's there's basically no reason. Like it doesn't matter if you roll a six, right? If your target number is seventeen, like there's yeah, you have to roll a twelve. That's true. So I think you may want to. I think you may want to just like be like, guys, I have a sword and I can. I'm actually pretty good at unearthing. Or it's like I have riddles and I have a bow, and maybe I think. I kind of think that this is the actual intent from what I've read is and, you are supposed to tell the party, hey, I look like this. Look is, at the sword on my back. I'm the sniper, right? Like because it's not like fifth edition where you always have a chance of success. Sure. No, that's, know, and that's like, a very good point. Right. Fifth edition D&D, you roll a 15 on your dice, whatever that is, you're probably going to succeed. This one, if you don't roll a 12, you might not be able to. And that those are pretty low odds. And as you go, you have the opportunity to earn more of these. Um, And Mm -hmm. it seems like they handed out fairly. uh, Yeah. Often. It looked pretty liberally. It looked like all players gain three skill points each at the end of every gaming session they attend. All players mm-hmm. receive three adventure points at the end of every gaming session they attend. So you're going to get better every time you sit at the table. And, yeah, and just bef- just getting three points at the end, that's enough to level up a skill from zero to two. Right, right. It is. Yep. Which is a great example of like if you think about um, Bilbo fighting the spiders in Mirkwood. Right. He went from, you know, all of a sudden and there's actually a nice quote in here talking about how he was a changed person after he fought the spiders in Mirkwood. And it is because now suddenly he's learning how to use a sword. He's he's been using it, you know, throughout the throughout the the books, but he's never actually used it to any great success. But because of what he's been doing and working on it now, all of a sudden he's able to use it Uh, before we jump into though earning experience. I did want to touch just a little bit more on this previous experience bit, because one of the things, and, and I mentioned this to you guys when we first played Vampire, was I like the idea of giving characters, hey, here's some freebie points, experience points, whatever you want to call it, as they're creating their character. Because here's a chance for you to say, okay, here's my character. Now I want to fine tune it 
you know, him or her a little bit more uh, just to make it so where this is the character that I truly want to present. And so I like the idea. And not only that, the the what I like about this is it, it takes into account that you are a, you are an adventurer. You are someone who is going out to do X. I can't imagine an adventurer, you know, unless they're going to be joining a, a company of dwarves, has absolutely no idea how to do stuff. You know, they're they're completely clueless unless you're thrust into it, you know, in the case of the hobbits. In this case, so you do you have this chance to say, yes, I'm an adventurer and I do know how to use the great accents on my back. Yeah, and I, I like that. I like that. It gives you the chance to do that. Yeah, you're not stuck just because you picked a bardling. You can still right. use an axe. Right. right? And, can... and, and if you think about like the character of Bilbo, we know that he could riddle his ass off, right? Because he yeah. does so with Gollum, yet he's not very proficient in swords so, or in combat, period. So, But yet he had other attributes about him that he was able to, like in this case, we saw why he was brought in. We saw the, the previous experience that he had. So I really like systems that use this, this, this ability to give you the chance to just kind of fine-tune your character a little bit more. And to add to that, as we will get into in the future as well, think about the character's lineage too when you're making this stuff because while you're making this character you're going to eventually make another one so as you get think about that kind of stuff of thinking like okay maybe this isn't your air quotes main character maybe this is your first character and as we attack through like two, three generations down the line is my main character so I don't know there's there's some fun timeline stuff you can get it really is So next we have starting gear and we, I think we kind of all agree that there's not a whole lot of point in dwelling on the starting gear. It's your standard, you know, swords, daggers, bows, armor, shields, and even the traveling gear doesn't really get into a whole lot. The thing to keep in mind here though, as, as Nolan was saying earlier, is that you have to remember your cost of living level. If you're somebody who's frugal, you may not have very good starting gear, or you may be walking instead of having a pony or or those types I, of things. Yeah, based on based on my understanding, if you're an elf, you or at least the elves from where these shore elves, you can't have a coat of mail. You don't you don't have the wealth to maintain it. And I think that's a, a standpoint of um, you're not poor. You just don't care about that garbage, right? So, right, and I th- and yeah. I think you, the only two cla- uh, rangers and elves live a frugal lifestyle. Rangers are on the move; they live off of the land. They don't have time. To, I mean, they basically sit in rainstorms protecting the roads. They don't have time to take care of that kind of stuff. No, it would. Yeah, I I think it's actually a pretty good like approximation of the fact that metal rusts mm-hmm. these. Like, this is an Iron Age society. They don't have stainless steel. Like, it's true. If you're if you're on if you're on the coast, there's no reason to have heavy armor because you'll sink. Unless it's something magical like Mithril. Unless you got something magical. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I think um, I think it's a fun little way of like differentiating that having some cost and benefits. But yeah, I think that's the big thing you have to keep in mind with with gear, what you're proficient with, whether or not you can even afford one. 
Yeah. And then the same is true when it comes to, to mounts, right? Because um, mm-hmm. they talk about the poor or frugal. The hero cannot afford a mount common. The hero brings an old horse or a half-starved pony. I think that's hilarious. Prosperous, the hero brings a decent beast. And rich or very rich, you get a fine beast. And if you think about like the ponies that the hobbits had versus the mount that Aragorn had, uh, it's completely different, right? Although yeah. technically, technically, Aragorn didn't get that mount until later because... Well, yeah, and again, it, I think that is the thing is what does, you know, when, when we meet Strider, what does he do? He takes people through the swamps. That's, you know, right. again, very often he makes the comment that this is no place for a pony. Like you go into places, right? You're going into a, a, a cave or in a, a system to, you know, look at something. You're going under the mountain. You're not bringing a horse there. They can't be yeah. there. So again, it is, don't look at it as a, I'm being too poor to have one. It's just your lifestyle. Yeah. So I, did, I, I can't help but think about the number of times we've played a game and the mounts end up getting lost somewhere. When you got to teleport around, you don't have time. You don't have time for horses. Yeah, but I've the number of times, like, especially when Shri is like, what, seriously, we lost our mounts again? Like, sorry. They couldn't go in the Sky Castle with you and you were transported 100 miles away. Yeah. So, yeah, the starting equipment. Yep. The starting equipment. I just don't feel like we need to spend a whole lot of time going over because it's pretty standard starting equipment. Yeah. Yep, so it very, tells you- and how heavy it is uh, and then variations in what kind of damage it does. So mm-hmm. see the chart. Pick your eyes. Yeah. And I mean, it, it really I don't even think it should be in this section. I think it should be with combat. Fair. I mean, that's still this starting is a hot there, take so. on book layout, but. So we want to jump down to starting reward and virtue, or do you feel like that needs to be, was that, I'm sorry, Zach, I got distracted. Something popped up on my computer and completely, I couldn't hear anything. Oh, uh, starting reward and virtue is also pretty, pretty small. Uh, the big thing is that the starting reward, you can pick something that is just like a really nice piece of equipment. And it is written into the rules that, the lore master cannot take it from you. I find I feel like that was a awesome. dig at me, my friend. It's not a dig at you. I just find it to be like an interesting thing where you can tell that whoever w- was writing this game was like, man, there's going to be some jerks out there who are like, <laughs> yeah, sure. No, you can have your super special sword. It's going to break in the first combat, but you can have it. And then they were like, nope, you have your super helmet. It can't be taken away from you. I, I feel like, though, I mean, from a again, we're, we're dealing with a game of heritage. We, we eventually will get into things where things are handed down. Um, some of the gear itself has so much more of a story than the actual person using it. Um, right. You, know, belt, you show up with the Horn of Gondor, right? You know, I mean, that kind of thing is a, a signature item. Uh, you know, the Gimli has his axe and it's his axe. It's not... We don't we don't see this a lot. Um, Gandalf, you know, does happen to find a magical sword, but he doesn't toss down the staff. He brings it with him. Um, very rarely do people just give up their heritage item or something that was there. And I think this kind of allows that too of create a story with this. Why is this important? Yes, yeah. absolutely. And we're going to see that later in this chapter when we talk about how you are building your lineage. So, and, and the ability to pass things on. So, yeah, I, and I do think this is a good good point. Um, to keep in mind. So it's a very small section. Uh, we do encourage you to read through it, but it isn't something we want to spend a whole lot of time on because again, this is a really big chapter. 
Yeah. But we yep. do need You're, to spend a, some time. Go ahead. A reward is an item. A virtue is an ability. So a reward, when you get a reward, you get a special sword. When you get a virtue, you get something like confidence, which raises your hope by two. That kind of stuff. So one affects what gear, the other affects your actual character. Right. Um, and they get more in-depth later in, but just know that you get to start with one, which is kind of cool. So let's jump down to the company, because at the end of the day, this this really isn't a game for solo playing. This is a game for playing with your friends. And in this case, we get to build our company, our fellowship, if you will. And I really I thought this was interesting. And they do give you steps on how to build your company. The first of which is choosing a patron. Zach, do you want to talk to us about patrons? Yeah, this one is optional. But the others aren't. Um, the basics of the patron is that uh, someone might need a company brought together. And so this patron might be the classic example is Elrond, who is like, all right, everybody, like, gather around. We need to talk about this uh, this ring and all of its, like, nastiness that Frodo found. And thankfully, it's it's here now. And then they need to talk about it. And now you have the Fellowship of the Ring. Where Elrond is like, all right, who's going who's gonna to do this? We need one person to bring axes. I need one person who does swords. Um, I need an archer. Who's the archer? I need an archer. Who, all right, who's the Okay, perfect. Sorry, there's only room for one archer. Um, now I need somebody to be the grumpy ass. Who's that? Oh, Dom. Uh, yeah, exactly. Love you, Dom. So that would be it. Um, Durin or Gandalf might be the patron of The Hobbit. Kind of just like, hey, I need to bring these people together. So it's an easy chance, I think, for the lore master to kind of have someone to give the fellowship stuff to do. I but, also think this year also is an opportunity to set the tone for what kind of campaign you want to run. Yep, Gandalf versus Balin are going to have two very different things of what they want. But I, I do want to say that this isn't the lore master giving them a patron. The fellowship picks their own patron. Yep. So yep. there's no like if the fellowship is like, yeah, let's just Elrond. We go to Rivendell. He wants us to do stuff like, all right, perfect. But the fellowship could also just look at their suggested to look at their characteristics, look at what they have and decide what kind of patron might be best for what they have. Yep. To and they have some they have some suggestions, Balin, Bilbo, um, Seared in the Shipwright. I don't know who that is, um, but Gandalf the Grey. They even suggest Tom Bombadil, you know, characters yeah. from the there's books. There's some really big, exactly, there's some really big, big names in those patrons. Yep, but there's no reason why you can't just make your own. Sure. You know, so that's kind of the big, and this this part is optional. You don't have to do it. But if you do, it does give you fellowship points. It does. And that will be important later on. And, and uh, not only, I was not just only say, that. is the guy who gave Gandalf the, the ring. And he's also the person who is the boat maker that sends people into the, into the West. Gotcha. There you go. All right. So, so after but, the patron is the safe haven. Right. And, and this, that's, that's kind of what I, was, I wanted to mention real quick is if you do take the time to build the company and go through all this, there are benefits to, to it. And the mm -hmm. next being, of course, the safe haven, which is directly related to the patron. Yep. So anyway, go ahead. 
Uh, the safe haven is just your base of operations. You just pick a place, you know, like uh, we're going to be a bunch of hobbits going into the whatever forest, the dark forest, the place where bon- the place where Tom lives, you know, and it's like, all right, well, bag um, Hobbiton, you know, Bilbo's the one who's asking us to do stuff. That'll be our patron. Where does Bilbo live? He lives in Hobbiton. That's where we're going to be hanging out. And it's just a place where you get to go back and be safe. And that's kind of the big deal. And it does talk about like it says in Eriador, the ideal choice for a starting safe haven is certainly the village of Bree as it stands at the crossroads of the East Road and North Road. And everyone who journeys across the land stops at the Prancing Pony for a pipe to smoke and comfort. So, yeah, and that's the whole point of the safe haven is it's a place where you can go and safely rest and be able to say, okay, we're going to take a break. We are finally back to our safe haven. You know, maybe we achieved whatever little mission that we were supposed to be on. And now we're going to rest and go through some of the other aspects of this game. Yeah. And that is. This is where you repair the fellowship. After like. Dealing with the darkness and the shadow and the travails of adventuring. So this is actually this is a pretty important part for the fellowship, but you can have more than one. Sure. You don't have to just have the one. If you find yourself in Rivendell, you don't have to go all the way back to Hobbiton just to fix your armor. You can you can have more than one safe haven, but that's just it. It's a it's a home. It's a safe place. OK, so as we follow along with the company, then we go from choose a patron, choose a safe haven. Now determine the company's fellowship rating. Nolan, do you want to talk to us about the fellowship rating and why that's important? Yeah, uh, as you adventure together, um, the fellowship, you you gain points among all players that you can uh spend to recover at lost confidence. So kind of a, not necessarily like gain experience, but these are things to kind of help uh, trigger special effects uh, that you've earned throughout the thing to kind of bail yourself out from time to time. Um, it's a opportunity to have at least a goal together of, you know, what are we getting? Because I feel like so often it's like, well, what is the, what is the outcome? Well, I gained a level. Did you gain a level? You know, so this here is a thing that everybody comes together and pulls their points together. Yep. And the way you determine your starting fellowship score, it's the number, it's the equal to the number of player heroes in the group. This value can be changed based on virtues, cultural, cultural blessings, or the company's patron. So there are ways to affect that. And once you have that calculated, it's important that everybody acknowledges it and writes it down because fellowships points cannot be spent unless all players agree on it. And that's the other thing that's really important to remember about fellowship points. I really enjoyed the so apparently there's a little dog whining at my door, which he never does. Um, the other thing that I thought was interesting about fellowship points was the fellowship focus. Uh, I, I thought that that was interesting in that it allowed you to allow someone to kind of be the leader, so to speak. At least that's how it felt to me. What did you guys think? Um, silence. <laughs> I think it's uh, it's like a blessing and a curse. Um, yes, it is. But and I can see where like, OK, take, for example, um, 
if we're going to go into, uh, say we have a, a, an elf in the party, right? And we're going to go mm-hmm. into an elven kingdom. We probably should make that fellowship focus upon the elf in the group. Yeah. So that way they can lead and be the one who said, you know, kind of represents the party. Vice versa, we are going to Arab, um, Erebor for some reason, and there is a dwarf of Erebor in the party. Again, you probably want to shift that fellowship focus. Or maybe there's just someone that, you know, that is someone who like again, well, I guess it just really plays into that. Like, okay, if if you're an Erebor and you have this this thing that you're trying to accomplish, the the person who has that fellowship focus can um, what is it, help the other person, right? Like if they're trying to do something in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it yes, uh, player heroes providing support to their fellowship focus make them gain um, two dice instead of one dice. Yeah, I guess I had that backwards, but yeah. So, so, so there is just, a point so if, in it. Yeah, if they're trying to, you have an elf trying to talk to Elrond to convince him to do something, and you're like, uh, I'm going to help him. If it's like you can give him an extra dice to roll. But if that elf is the fellowship focus, then they get two dice, which, right. as I said, you know, earlier, you have you kind of need to roll as many dice as possible because you're trying to get a number between 17 and 14. And that can be pretty hard. Um, there is a thing, though, where. In game, um, if this fellowship focus is harmed, wounded, uh, yep has a bout of madness, then everyone takes a point of shadow because you're supposed to be helping them out. Um, Out of game, in character, I think that, I don't even know what I'm saying, mechanizing it can, like, what if you have a player who's like, yeah, I just don't like doing that. Like, are you supposed to know? Like, what if they don't tell you Right. And you keep trying like everyone's like, yeah, no, let's you know, I want Gary to be the fellowship focus. And Gary's like, no, I don't want to do that. Does it create a situation where eventually they just keep giving the focus to the player who's best at the game? Does everyone have to take a turn? Well, I don't think everybody has to take a turn, but I definitely think, you know, if if there is a player who isn't enjoying something about the game, that player really should speak up. And I know, like, I think back to when you were playing your Kobold Belrear, and I know there was a lot of times where kind of in this case, the fellowship focus was on Belrear and you're like, I don't like this. So I think you have to be vocal as players. If this is something that you don't enjoy, if this is an aspect of the game that you don't enjoy, or maybe it gives you anxiety because you feel like it's stressing you out because you now are, are now the fellowship focus. Say something. Be vocal about it. Hopefully you have a party or a group of players, friends, that are, are willing to say, you know what, Zach doesn't necessarily like being the fellowship focus. Let's not give it to him. But by the same token, though, be willing to say, you know what, guys, I know I don't like it, but this is the one time where me having the fellowship focus would really benefit the whole party. And I think as long as you're communicating with each other, communication is key to everything, then it should be fine. Yeah, I do. I agree. It's like taking the help action. Yeah. In my mind, it's one of those things of like, I think if the, the thing is balanced or whatever their example here is, you know, some guy trying to pick a lock or something, right? It's like, well, you know, we, we see we see this a lot throughout the movies of different things. Again, I think early on it's Frodo, right? You know, you have my sword, you have my axe, you have my bow. And then Aragorn standing at Helm's Deep. It's, you know, whatever happens, we're with you, laddie. I mean, I feel like Aragorn becomes the fellowship focus at that point. Um, you know, so I feel like there are different times where this comes up of, 
you use these as moments to support each other. So don't think of it as like, oh, we're taking the Hobbit to Isengard. You know what I mean? Like type shit. Like or it's like, oh, it's all about them. Well, it's not necessarily all about them. It's just these people need your support in this moment. And this happens to be that time. So help them out. And it's not going to be this way forever because they're going to come through this ordeal. So Fellowship focus is a very small part of this chapter, but I do feel like it's pretty important, especially as you're moving through the game. Uh, but as you finish your, your 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 session, your gaming session, and you sit down at the end and you're trying to figure out your experience points, unlike some games like D&D, we don't have... Actually, I really like the the rating in D&D where it's uh, based on objectives versus total experience points game. Uh, so in this case, we just have experience points that you gain for playing, not necessarily for killing monsters or anything like that. There's no experience rating for killing a Balrog. Uh, probably just means you just broke the game. But uh, in this case, you gain experience for just playing. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. You just you just get them. You just get them and they kind of they kind of talk about it. and I imagine this is going to be based on your lore master's uh, recommendations or or suggest or the way the lore master wants to do it. But they kind of talk about it. It's like, OK, you played for three hours. You get one point for per hour. Yeah, it. Yeah. You gain at least three skill points at the end of every gaming session you attend. Yep. And as I said earlier, three points is enough to get a skill from zero to two. Right. And I, and I think it's a great representation because they use the quote that I was talking about earlier of, of Bilbo, right? It says somehow the killing of, a, of the giant spider all alone by himself in the dark without the help of the wizard or the dwarves or anyone else made a great difference to Mr. Baggins. And it's a great that's a great representation of what it means like in the game where all of a sudden you do something that you didn't normally do and you're able to grow your character and, and develop them. And that's where you get these. That is a great use of experience points. Yeah, and, like and you, you may feel like this is a lot. Uh, you know, the next section talks about um, they assume that your adventuring career is going to be about 10 years. And during that time period, you should reach excellence um, in, you know, five plus ranks in valor, wisdom or comparable combat proficiency. So the idea behind it is, is, yeah, you're going to be this candle that burns hot and fast. And before your time is done, you figure out who to teach your skills to. So, yeah, it is a lot, but you are the hero. And most people don't do this sort of thing. So you're, you have a natural affinity for it to begin with. That's why you're doing it. And as you go through, you've seen some shit. So uh, you are better at it than most. Also, I mean, it's also only three. Mm-hmm. Right? You want to get a point up to from three to four. That's five points, which means that's at least two gaming sessions to get six so you might not even be able to use it until the third session you know and that's and all it's doing is adding a dice but like i know that's a big deal in this but i don't think it's an equivalent to leveling up every single session like it would be where you have huge spikes in power in like pathfinder or D. You know, in this, it's just like, well, I didn't have a point in burglary, but uh, I've been learning from Bildo, and now I can do it. Right. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. Now I can help him out at least a little bit. Well, no, I, think I don't think these like are major. Life. Yeah, these aren't major game changers. Right. If, You're growing a little bit at a time. If I've so never very, done this before and I do it for the first time, it's super easy to pick up the basics, but mastering yeah. something is near impossible. 
Yeah. So, so I know they're giving you a lot of points, but like, not it. It's not as much as it really sounds. So they do talk about the Yule Fellowship phase and how you can earn a number of additional skill points equal to the adventure's wits rating. And uh, now I I don't remember reading about the Yule Fellowship phase. Did I miss that? Was that in an earlier chapter? Do you guys remember? No, it, it comes up later. Okay. Okay, but it does use an example here. It says in the last adventuring phase, Fulco, the Hobbit, has taken part in three gaming sessions for for a total of nine skill points. When the next Yule arrives, he will earn six additional points, his wits rating. So I guess that's equal to his wits rating. All players remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so. So, yeah, so we have not talked about what Yule Fellowship is, so I guess we'll get into that later. And then lastly, we have adventure points. Um, Adventure points. All players receive three adventure points at the end of every gaming session they attend. Uh, Adventure points, the sense of accomplishment of the player heroes, their confidence and skill at arms, their hardened respect paid to them by their peers or respected by the award of adventure points. Players can earn adventure points um, as follows. Uh, It just says you earn three. Yeah, and so skill points are for skills. Adventuring points are for combat proficiencies. Um, But they work but they work exactly the same. Perfect. So now we have further adventures. And this is, I thought, one of the coolest sessions in this. Now, this reminds me of the game Pendragon, where in Pendragon, you can play a lineage. Like you start playing this character, that character dies or retires. You play that character's heir, so to speak. Could be a brother, son, sister, aunt's brother, cousin, whatever. Uh, and in this case, it's very much like that. Because eventually, The idea being you go mad, you retire or you get killed and someone else picks up where you left off or you've inspired someone to go out and seek their own adventure. Someone that, you know, and I really like this section. And we'll get into combat, but death is quite likely. Right. Um, There are some there are it's weighted in the player's favor, but if they mess up, even once, if they roll an 11 on their dice, they might die. Straight up. Right. So why not have someone on the side? I love that. The idea of, uh, you know, so-and-so dies. Well, I erased the name, wrote a new name, and now I'm playing his twin. Yep. <laughs> you know, kind of the idea. Earl. Yep. <laughs> I'm going to backtrack for just a second. So the Yule is, uh, there's a Yule 1 and Yule 2. Yule 1 is the last day of the year. Yule 2 is the first day of the year. So every year what? you level up skill points based upon your wits because you adventured for a year, you got smarter. Yeah, it so is every year. You, it, that's what a Yule is every year. Yeah. And it comes up in the fellowship phase, which is a completely like separate part of the game that we're just going to have to dive into later. But yeah, it does basically. Yeah. Once a year, you get some more skill points. So further adventures is really focusing on creating an air. Um, and it talks about here, it says player heroes are expected to rise to excellence. And Nolan, you mentioned this earlier in about 10 years of game time, meaning to reach the ranks of five plus in valor and wisdom and comparable levels in a combat proficiency. It goes on to say heroes who get this far with their body and spirit intact should consider themselves very lucky. Again, re- referencing what Zach was saying about you could very easily die uh, and seriously consider retiring. But much before they do that, they should choose an heir. 
Only by doing so can heroes pass along as much of their experience as you can uh, before a well-aimed blow finally ends their career or sorrow and regret nest too deeply into their soul. The thing to remember is, is that you are going to designate an error. You're going to say, this is my person. So I'm playing Bill. I'm going to claim Jane as my heir. She is going to be the person who's going to take over when Bill dies. And, and really, that's how you start. You start by just writing down the name. You don't need to do anything more than that at first. Just write down the name because you're going to be building upon that character as you go along. Now, as you play Bill and Bill eventually does whatever he's going to do, um, maybe he finally comes to an end or he decides he's going to retire. During the time that you're playing Bill, you are banking experience, so to speak, for Jane, right? And Jane is learning, you know, from Bill's exploits or, or whatever, and is able to, you know, kind of have a, a, a chance to get out there and do stuff. Now, the neat thing is, is like if you only played Bill for three sessions and he didn't play for very long, but Jane was still inspired. Jane doesn't have near the experiences as if you played Bill for a lot of sessions and you did eventually get to those mastery levels. And and now Jane is setting out in the world with not only the experiences, but potentially some of the gear that Bill had. So there's a and I I love this idea that you can create this heir who is, you know, could be really good at something or could just be starting out because Bill died before Bill could set out to do whatever they were. And they're just kind of picking up and Bill taught him how to use a knife. And that's about it. Yeah, it's I I think it's a way of approximating a backup character in a way that adds to the story of just readying you for it. It is incredibly thematic when you think about Mm -hmm. Gloin being part of the original company of dwarves and now Gimli, his son, is going out with the Fellowship or even Bilbo and Frodo. It is incredibly thematic. And I thought this was I think this is just brilliant. I I really, really like this. And I like the fact that you can have that heirloom piece represented very much so by the helmet that Gimli wears because it's the same one that Gloin wore or the uh, chain of uh, the the shirt of chainmail, the mithril chainmail that Frodo and, of course, Sting. Um, that Bilbo passes on to Frodo. So we see those things and we see those represented in the stories as well as in the game. And it's just a great way. And this is just, you know, Nolan, you talk a lot about, you know, showing care to the, the, these realms or these, these stories that we love so much. This is a great way to take that, that aspect of it and bring it into a game and be able to say, look, this is what, how it was written by Tolkien. And we just wanted to continue that and make sure that it stays thematic. Well, and I I look at it less of a backup cam- character as what is the timeline of this arc, right? It's what, 45 years between The Hobbit and The Fellowship? Uh, 60? Yeah, somewhere, it's between 45 and 60, we'll just say that. <laughs> okay, so plan on playing four characters if you're going to play through the whole timeline. Yeah, good point. And inevitably, your fourth character, and, I, and that's kind of how I imagine it, five then the second shadow is back. I mean, you might be dealing, you know, I mean, you could, you could, you could be dealing with some pretty heavy stuff or even carry it into kind of like all of this descendants, everything has led. Exactly. To this. Exactly. And I think, you know, again, you know, you think about like Frodo getting stabbed by the cave troll wearing a, uh, the, the mithril shirt. Great example of why creating your air is important and investing in the air. Uh, it's so, so important. Yeah. I really, really enjoyed this part of it. I thought this was a great way to say, you know, 
show the importance of it and 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 again have that character that you're ready to play as soon as soon as bill dies well here's jane ready to take his place and there it's not just um making a backup like character you do you do redo the character creation process right but you take one of bill's um favored skills and you designate that as a family skill. Yep. The family like, we just we just know that all of Bill's descendants are really good at riddles. It's just yep. they they just grow up telling riddles to each other. So it does allow and a favored role, you roll two D twelve and you take the higher result. So it does Always. matter. It's Always. like rolling an just, advantage in D D. Yep, but there's no there's no situational thing. It just always happens. And so it's one of those things where this is an actual benefit for your character and you get to have the other favored skills from your heritage, from your other things when you redo the character creation process. So it is it is objectively a a buff to your character. You will be making a yes. better character your second when you make your heir. And if you have enough experience points um, banked up, you can also designate some of Bill's gear as being heirlooms. And they basically become more starting rewards. We had mentioned them, like the, the gear that your lore master can't take away from you because it's so special. You could have up to two more of those. So not only are you starting with Bill's... Um, special knife that he found from the Barrow White, but you're also starting with Bill's shirt. Um, he has a leather coat of... He has some leather armor that is just really well made, and he's also got a helmet that he was wearing, and now they're all heirlooms. So this is a process of... It's, it's simultaneously like a backup character and a level up or a prestige class. Um, well, and it's make like a stronger character, right? And it's like Nolan said, maybe maybe the character you actually want to play is the great great grandson. And you're building that character by playing the great great grandfather and then the grandfather, then the father until you finally play that fourth character who is the actual character that you truly wanted to play and build. But you needed to invest these points into them before you could actually play that character. Yeah, you really wanted to play Gimli, but you're starting as Glenn. Right, right. So you can get those things that Gloin passed on to Gimli so you can actually play the character that you want to play. And it does, you know, the thing to keep in mind is like if you do not designate an heir, if you do not say that, you know, Jane is going to be my heir and you die. You're shit out of luck and you're starting over. You have no heirlooms. You have nothing and you have no benefit of having some of that experience banked into your character. And it, I mean, it doesn't have to be family as well. I mean, you can have fun with this. Um, you could be a human raised by elves, right? I mean, we, we see that. Yep. Um, so don't think of it just as I'm making my yeah. kid or whatever, but maybe that is the thing of like, oh, you know, have yeah, that in uh, mind. That's Silmarillion, right? Hewer and Tour, raised by, yep, trained by uh, some elves. I think you could also do this to just create higher level starting characters. To just yeah, like absolutely. be like, hey guys, you get to right. Tell me who your ancestor was. Tell me what your family heritage is. Tell me what your two starting heirlooms were. And so, if you didn't want to start, like you wanted to fight, like you're like, hey guys, I want to fight orc chiefs right now, right? I want to fight 
I want to I want to send cave trolls at you. Make stronger characters. Here's another way to do it. Well, guys, we have actually <laughs> gone to our time limit, uh, which was I guess is appropriate because we're actually at the end of this chapter now with creating an air. Uh, I was hoping we could get into chapter four, but it just doesn't look like it just because we've exceeded our time here. But we will look into chapters four and five next week. And as we continue our look at the one ring, eventually we're going to have to stop uh, going through this book, because like Zach said, it does get to a point where it's just lore master stuff and the players just don't don't need to know anymore. So before we wrap up, I just want to get your guys' final take on this chapter as a whole. Uh, Nolan, we'll start with you. What did you think of the the whole character creation process? Did you enjoy this? Do you do you think it's uh, do you not like it? What, what are your thoughts? I like it. Uh, I, I enjoy a lot of what it takes to make a character. I do like the idea of um, building towards a future as well. Um, and then I, I do think that there is a, a great emphasis on creating the team. And I like that a lot. I like having a, um, I like having a group of people come together and make a good team versus having five individuals that you're forced to play with. So, Sure. Zach, your thoughts? Um, I think... Yeah, I think it's really in depth. This is literally the longest section, save for maybe the lore master section. It, I think it gets really, I don't know how to say this. It's a lot more complex than you think it is. But once you have read it and done it, it all comes together. Right. So I, I think it's one of those things where it is, you know, it's, it's 35 pages of pretty dense this just this section 35 pages of pretty dense mechanics and themes but if all you read was chapter three you could play the game as, as a character as a character yeah yeah right like and then you just gotta buff up on the adventuring and fellowship phases and and you're good to go so I think mechanically it's it's kind of interesting. I haven't played anything like this. I've never read about anything like this. Um, but it sounds fun. It does. I really like this section. I thought this was really well done. I love, I, again, I, I said it earlier, I love the whole building your future, building an air. I think that's fascinating. I like the idea of heirlooms. I like the idea that a, a storyteller, a lore, a lore master can't take certain things away from you because they're just too important to you. And I, I think I think they've done, the writers have done a fantastic job with this section. Uh, it makes me excited to create a character. It makes me excited to actually play a character in the game, in the world. Uh, it helps that I love the setting. So yeah, I'm, I'm all for it, all for it. So next week we will take a look at chapters four and five. Uh, probably won't go as in depth because it's a lot of like, these are your skills. These are this, these are that. And there's no point in us detailing every single one. We may pick or choose a couple that we thought were interesting, but that's about it. Um, do remember that the one ring is available in PDF form on drive through RPG, or you can always go to uh, free league's website and you can purchase the book there. Fellas, do you have anything else before we sign off? Not for me. No, no, I, I'm really excited. I'd like to play this. Perfect. Well, everybody, thank you so much for listening. We will see you next time. Bye. Thank you, everybody.